welcome everybody to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. Your number one podcast. Here, two guys talk about interesting concepts, ideas, discuss new uh, new ways of discussing them, new analytical approaches, so you can share them with your friends and family. I am Paul. As always, I'm joined by King Anarchy Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing good. We had a nice uh, nice Fourth of July weekend. Uh, got out to a friend's house to do a bit of a cookout, and we relaxed and listen to fireworks. How about you? Yeah, nice. No, uh, yeah, we had, we had something similar, had some, um, some, uh, burgers, some hot dogs. And, uh, as, as I was telling you offline, we didn't have the same excitement or enthusiasm with the fireworks cause they went on from what felt like five or six hours to about 1am. And, uh, it just, it felt like a war zone. I can only imagine what it must be for other people. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that the uh, the fireworks are a little bit more contained, maybe a little bit more localized and, and shorter in duration, I think uh, would be kind of my <laughs> my revision to the July 4th holiday. Right. Yeah. You're getting a little old there, Paul. Did you start yelling at the kids to get off your lawn? I, I did. I, I'm, I'm going to get a laminated sign uh, that I can just have permanently in my window if need be, and I can just put a spotlight on it every time they do something. Because <laughs> right. I want to, I want to automate this process. I don't want to have to go out there in my underwear and have to tell the kids to get off the lawn. I, I, I want a process around it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, um, we were, we were, <laughs> we were discussing offline all the, all the joys of Fourth of July and how excited we are to celebrate. I think we. Uh, I'll speak for myself. I, I really enjoy the holiday. I just, uh, I wouldn't mind the, the fireworks be a little bit differently, but uh, be a little bit different. But I, I know some people went to parades and my parents, where they were, there was a parade. So it was kind of like the 1950s style kind of stuff. So that's, that's still pretty cool. I think it's a pretty good celebration overall. Yeah, um, I think I think a lot of people were really itching to get outside and spend yeah. some time around other people. So uh, it's glad to hear that a lot of people were getting out. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, we have a very exciting episode today. This is uh, the Great Reset 2.0. And for those who have been uh, listening to us from the beginning, one of the first episodes we did uh, was a discussion of the Great Reset and asking ourselves whether or not it was a conspiracy worth looking at, uh, what exactly they wanted to do, and, and, and trying to, to kind of get some um, some light in the middle of the fog of what you heard. And uh, what we decided now, we're, we're several months uh, since we, we first did that episode, and it seems like there's more information that's come about that we thought it'd be interesting to dissect it um, and, and really give an updated view on, on the Great Reset, what it is, um, and, and um, are we feeding into the conspiracy or is it something that's uh, more plausible? So uh, we're going to be discussing that. But before we do, we'd love to hear from you uh, it, wherever you're listening to us on, on Apple on Spotify or on uh, the website, mentallyunscripted.com. You you can find us. We'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts and what we're doing, what we're missing, especially this, this whole conversation is, is about trying to uh, find new ways of discussing topics. We'd love to hear from you what we're missing and what we can do to improve. And um, so wherever you are, check us out and leave your comments and uh, let us know what you think. So, all right, Scott, you ready to dive into this? I'm ready to go. All right. So, uh, you know, before we, we talk specifically about the Great Reset, uh, I, I wanted to, to give credit to Scott, who wrote a great article on pattern recognition. And uh, it's, you know, just I, I, I found it fascinating. There were some new concepts in there, this idea of, I'm going to call it apophenia. Is that, is that how you pronounce it, Scott? Uh, that, that's how I've been pronouncing it. Okay. <laughs> so if you're uh, wrong, we're both wrong. Okay, well, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. So it's it's a concept, and I'm going to ask him to to kind of walk through that. And it, but it, it just explores how the brain sees patterns, and how we can draw uh, false patterns uh, from from data points, and the, and the challenge of that with you know going down a conspiracy route versus the other side of it, which is where you start to see data patterns uh, that start to signal maybe you are seeing a pattern. So, so Scott, you know, um, I thought, again, it was just a really interesting article, really thought provoking. Uh, what was your thinking? Why did, why did you decide to write that article? Honestly, I don't completely remember. I, I actually started writing it about a year ago and I had it about halfway done. And then, uh, that's when I got, got distracted with some other projects. Um, so I had left the blog for a little while. And when I came back to the blog, I wanted to finish the article. So I picked it back up. The best I can remember is I read an article about it somewhere and I thought it was an interesting concept. Uh, 
not so much the pattern recognition part, but the apophenia or the false mm-hmm. pattern recognition part. Um, so of course I had to understand pattern recognition to understand false pattern recognition. So I just went ahead and included both in the article, but, uh, yeah, the point of the article is mostly to, uh, just highlight to people that false pattern recognition is one of the, uh, biases I would, I suppose that can lead us to making poor decisions. Mm-hmm. And we all know that this podcast, right, we're here to try to <laughs> try to help people see things from different perspectives um, to help them keep from making poor decisions and help them to be able to communicate better with the people around them. So, um, you know, the connection between false pattern recognition and conspiracy theory, I think, is especially relevant uh, these yeah. days. And I think it can help some people who think they're seeing, seeing a conspiracy to maybe take a step back, but it can also help people who are calling their brother who does believe in a conspiracy crazy, right? It can help those people maybe understand a little bit uh, where the folks on the other side are coming from. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting, I'd say vision or vantage point when you see that um, you don't attribute someone believing in, in the conspiratorial side of, you know, our society as having a belief system, but maybe you're looking at more at sort of their, their, coupling that or thinking about uh, the fact that they're seeing a pattern that maybe you're not seeing and it matters to them. So I think the example you gave for apophenia was like seeing a pattern when you see a shape in a cloud, right? So if you see a dragon or or cloud shaped like a dragon, you're seeing a pattern that really isn't there. I mean, it it may be abstractly, but your your brain is constructing that. Is that the right way to think about the concept? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty common one in false pattern recognition. Um, I, I guess maybe to take a step back, if we can, just you know, for the folks who don't know, pattern recognition is humans are just amazing at pattern recognition. And that's when we see something or hear something and we can we can understand it for what it is. Essentially, we take that pattern, we match it up to some sort of a template in our brains. So if we see so like when I see Paul, I know based on the template in my brain of what a human looks like, what a male looks like. Okay. Yeah. So when we see something or hear something, when we match it up to that template. So like I, like the example with Paul, it enables us to recognize people. It enables us to uh, communicate. So writing, when we see particular lines, put on a page in a certain way where we recognize those as letters. Those letters are put together in a certain way, right? We recognize that pattern as a word. And then it's the same thing with, with oral communication. We hear certain patterns, we know what they are. So pattern recognition, it's integral to our survival, right? It's what helps us recognize predators. Uh, it's what helps rec- help us recognize plants that we can eat, animals that we have a chance of killing and eating. Um, but we're so good at it that it goes a little too far and we'll start to see patterns that exist in random data. Um, in other words, we think we see a pattern that doesn't exist. So yeah, a shape in the cloud is a, is a perfect example where that's all just random data, that cloud, right? But we're, we're putting that data together in a way that makes it look like a shape. And from that aspect, it can be fun. Um, or also, um, you know, going to fortune tellers, um, things like that, right? There's a lot of pattern recognition there. Um, the fortune teller will give you some vague statement, right? And you'll create a pattern in your head. So when the fortune teller says, oh, I see great changes in your future. Well, whatever you've got coming up in the future, you're going to label that as, oh, that's the great change she's talking about. Um, so from that aspect, it can be fun, but you can see like with the fortune teller example, it can go too far. So if you start to believe what the fortune teller is telling you, or you start to believe that you um, see a pattern in the roulette wheel at the casino, right? You can end up gambling away your life savings. So the same thing happens with conspiracy theories. We start to see unrelated, isolated events, and we start to put them together in patterns. And we start to fill in the gaps and tell ourselves a story. Um, So that's that's where I think it's really relevant to today to the discussion we're going to have today about the great reset. Yeah, no, I, I I think the concept is fascinating when um, you you can hear people discussing a topic and they they don't really get into a question of, well, what pattern do you see versus what pattern do I see? They can start sharing facts very, very quickly 
without kind of exploring uh, what what we've talked about on this uh, this uh, the show, kind of the meta discussion or what is the meta narrative. And because we we jump into the facts, those are data points, right? Or a collection of data points. How you connect those data points does matter, right? So what are the patterns that you see versus someone else, right? Uh, so it, it, it's a it's a really good model. Uh, and even just a question that can query your brain and force it out of its sort of subconscious routines. Those routines right. that really force you to not really engage your rational self. Um, it's your intuition. It, it can actually force that out of it. So I think it's um, it can be a very powerful tool for just cleaner thinking, right? And, right. Um, you know, I, I, I went on uh, to, to see about some other uh, people that had spoken about it and, and uh, Nassim Taleb had written about it in the Black Swan, calling it the the narrative fallacy. Uh, and I'm just going to read a, a quote here. Uh, the narrative fallacy addresses our limited ability to look at sequences of facts without weaving an explanation into them, or equivalently forcing a logical link, an arrow of relationship upon them. Explanations bind facts together. They make them all the more easily remembered. They help them make more sense. But where this propensity can go wrong is when it increases our impression of understanding. So it it makes us feel like we understand the events better than we do, but we're drawing um, inaccurate patterns that that the data doesn't really support. And I I think that's the challenge, right, with this concept of conspiratorial thinking is that oftentimes someone will say they can dismiss an idea because they say, well, that, that came from a person. So there's a pattern there that I see of someone, you know, kind of an algorithm that they run where they say, okay, you say, well, have you heard about this concept? The question is, well, who shared it with you? And then you, if you say it's from a certain person, let's say Alex Jones as an example, well, that's a conspiratorial. They don't even need to know what the idea was. I mean, he could say that uh, the sun will come up tomorrow. And, you know, it gets kind of batched together with all of his, his other ideas. Um, and, and also what I, what I find interesting is about Alex Jones, uh, particularly is that when I've asked people, have you listened to Alex Jones? Many of the, many of his critics, um, will tell you, no, I, I actually haven't heard anything of Alex Jones. I just, I just know that he's a conspiratorial person. Uh, and I've, I've listened to quite a, a, several hours of his conversations with Joe Rogan. I find them fascinating humorous. Uh, I laugh. I'm, I'm not on the receiving end of, of, I'm sure some of his more outlandish ideas. And I, I personally, I don't really buy into what he's saying as anything more than him being an entertainer. Uh, but I, I suppose other people look at it differently. I, what's your experience, uh, listening to, to Alex Jones? Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who's never listened to one of his shows. I've only heard him on Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Uh, one of the dangers of um, this false pat- pattern recognition or apophenia is when you combine it with confirmation bias, right? So mm. if you believe that something's a conspiracy, then you see a, a pattern that doesn't exist and that confirms your theory about a conspiracy, right? You're going to adopt that pattern. Um, mm. So it, it the two work together to, to sort of a supercharger, I guess, you know, it kind of, you know, conspiracy theories on steroids, I guess. I don't know. Um, so, so someone who's listening to Alex Jones, right. They're going to be inclined to believe what Alex Jones says. So they're going to emphasize the information that he gives you. Right. So this confirmation bias, and then he's, he's laying the patterns out for you. Um, right. At least when, from what I've heard, he's, he's excellent at doing that. So he lays this pattern out for you it confirms what you believe because number one, he's saying it. Number two, you probably already believed it anyway. Right. So it's, it's all working together to get people into this space of losing objectivity, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's uh, there's another aspect of it, which is sort of your, your mental state, your, your psychological state of what do you, as you said, there's the confirmation bias. You can be in a state of panic, fear, rage, about the government as an example, uh, which makes you more inclined when you hear the confirmation bias of, well, you know, he just, he just said exactly what I, I thought was, was true. You don't actually go back and say, well, was it exactly what you thought was true? Was it directionally, uh, what you thought was true? Um, and then, and then layer on a couple of other tools like probabilistic thinking of well, how, how likely is this to be true? A hundred percent, 10%, 
But you, so there's, there's other tools that you can use as you're going through and hearing these claims and starting to identify these patterns. And I, I think that's where the clearest thinkers that I've, I've, I've read and seen is that they fight these biases. It's not that they, they don't have the bias, but they fight the bias back with these different questions. They layer on a set of good mental models that, that help to clarify the route and, and you know, really the likelihood of any of these, these claims being true. Okay, so we, we've got this concept of pattern recognition, which we know, as Scott said, is it's part of our DNA. It's what's helped us survive for, uh, for thousands of years. But we know that it can go too far. We start to identify these patterns um, based on the data that are, are, don't really exist. Right. And, and, you know, one way of looking at that, that I think Taleb talks about, it doesn't increase our understanding of reality. It just creates a story that we, we feel is right. And so I think that's the problem with this concept of conspiratorial thinking that you can just put it into a box, you know, certain ideas, aliens, that's conspiracy, Bigfoot, it's conspiracy, um, government, uh, tapping your phone. It's a conspiracy. There's a lot of ideas we can just put in that conspiratorial box and kind of, uh, air gap it and say, well, we're not going to talk about those topics. However, there's there's many ideas that kind of are on the edge, right? Where people start to identify a pattern based on data that's coming in and that data can be real. And the question is, do they identify the pattern too early and it's nothing, you know, it's, it's a false pattern or are they starting to see the beginning of something greater, right? And that's that's where people that are skeptical, I think, can oftentimes live where uh, they do have questions and they want to seek out the idea of truth. And, I, and actually, I, um, when I was going through a, a discussion of sort of heterodox thinking and how you have independent thinking, uh, one definition came from a, a venture capitalist named Paul Graham. And he put it as a combination of curious minds interested in the truth and they don't like to be told what to think. Right. So if you, if you combine all that, you can think the curious mind is always interested in what, what's out there. They're, they're saying, well, okay, is this, you know, what, what I'm hearing, is it the truth or is there more truth behind the, the facts that you're sharing with me? And then I don't like being told what to think. So if someone comes out and says, here's a box of ideas you can't touch, it's almost like the little kid that says, well, wait a second, why can't I touch it? Are you trying to, are you trying to prevent me from knowing something? So, it, you know, I, I say all that to say, it, it, I, think, I think conspiracies are a complex topic that some of them kind of go on the line of being... A uh, conspiracy and not a conspiracy is the pattern emerging or not, right? Right, and uh, you know, just one more quick thing. Um, a lot of us, I mean, we're drawn to conspiracies, and I think part of that is we have a need to be right. Like we feel good when we're right, and that's what causes us to seek out confirming evidence and ignore disconfirming evidence. Right? We want to be right, and I think that happens a lot with conspiracy theories. Right? We want to think there's some conspiracy going on, so we start to see this information, and we selectively, uh, sec- selectively pick through the information and, and keep the stuff that confirms our conspiracy theory while getting rid of the stuff that disconfirms it. Um, right. So it, it. So even if it's you know, government's using mind control on us and contrails and all of this stuff, right? Scary stuff, <laughs> right? You yeah. still feel good when you find out you're right about it, even though it's right. bad news. So I, well, I, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a, there's an argument to be made that the, the person that sees the pattern earliest can be advantaged, right? So, um, you know, the, the person that's able to identify pattern markets that others are not seeing is able to place a bet and, and have a financial windfall if they're correct. And oftentimes they talk about in trading that it's the, um, you know, when you see all the herd moving in one direction, you want to do the opposite. Well, that, that could be true, or maybe all the herd is actually moving in the direction where the market's going, right? So um, there's, a, there's both a cost and a benefit uh, to being on the, on the opposite side and seeing those patterns. So I, I yeah. think that that also plays into why the idea of conspiracy thinking is is not going to go away because in a lot of ways it's tr- it's trying to see patterns uh, as you said and you have the problems of confirmation bias but there's also people trying to see the patterns before they really emerge and everyone agrees to them right, right yeah yeah i mean if you're the first prepper to see the coming of the world right you're going to be at an advantage over everyone else Absolutely. and so you know, maybe in that way, we do kind of think of it as, as gambling, right? We're just, mm-hmm. we're looking at all the evidence, but, and trying to come up with the most likely scenario of what's going to happen. Just the important part is, is you have to look at all of the evidence. You can't just right. look at the evidence that 
that confirms your bias. And, and I think that's actually a really good segue as we were talking about offline. How do we know when a concept is, you know, false pattern or we'll call it conspiracies of, of um, little value or just, you know, fictitious versus the real pattern that hasn't quite emerged yet. Right. And that actually, I think though that's, that's the space in that we're trying to talk about when we talk about the gray reach set. Yep. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the big question though, is how do you know when it's a real pattern and when it's not a real right. pattern? And sometimes you just, you have to wait, keep doing your research, keep an open mind, but wait, you know, obviously if you see what looks like a rabbit in the clouds in the sky, right, you know, that's not literally a rabbit. Okay. So right. you can, you can discount that pattern. Like I said, it's fun, but don't believe that there's a rabbit floating around up there at least. Yeah. You know, not that we maybe maybe the government is floating rabbits around in the sky. I don't know. Um, maybe we could start a new conspiracy theory for that. But <laughs> the government it, rabbits yeah, in the sky, right? Um, you know, but 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 like Paul said, you know, keep your curiosity, right? Always go out there and look for the confirming evidence. Look for the disconfirming evidence, and try to look at them on evil plane uh, level playing field, right? Don't just throw the disconfirming evidence out because you don't like it. Um, right. So. I think, you know, with this great reset thing, not great reset thing, I mean, the great reset, right? We know the, this idea of the great reset is real. I think the question just comes in is how much of what we're seeing going on in the world is calculated to lead us towards the great reset and how much of it is just stuff that's happening because of greed and um, Mm self-interest by the parties involved. And to me, that's where the real question comes in. Yeah. Well, and, and so it, our first episode, when we talked about this concept, uh, there were a couple of points that we, that we hit on. So we took, there are sort of three planks to the gray read set platform, uh, and, you know, improving education, making life more sustainable, uh, you know, improving the lives of everybody. It was really high level and somewhat nebulous. Right. And then we went, um, uh, into look into well, what are some other ideas of the world economic forum and what have they proposed? You know, do they have teeth or do they have some kind of mechanism to enforce their ideas in uh, local governments or uh, different states? And what we found was, no, they, they really don't. They, they, they bring up a lot of ideas. They have sort of a idealistic view of what the world can look like. And then they, they publish ideas about it. So the great reset to us, I think it felt like these, these ideas, whether you like them or dislike them, you know, it's all up to your local government. Uh, really to decide how they're going to coordinate them. And so since that time, I think what we're seeing now is that there's some there's some data that starts to come up uh, that suggests that perhaps our world leaders and our local leaders are starting to move in that direction. They're taking at least some some notes from the the ambitions and the agenda of the Great Reset and figuring out how can they actually apply them. Right? Right. Which, you know, again, if you're thinking about how do I identify a pattern, right, I would, I would go back to, you know, this idea, well, the, the Great Reset has some very high level ideas, uh, things like, and they talk about in their marketing, like you will own nothing and you will be happy, right? Um, well, you, you, hear, you hear that and you ask, well, what does that mean? Do I, do I literally rent all the items around me? Do I not own a home? Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Do you think that's a good place to kind of start as, as kind of a, you know, a question? Are we seeing something? Absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. And, um, if somebody announces this great new drug called Soma that <laughs> takes away all your worries and doesn't leave you with a hangover, then I'm going to, I'll probably go full on conspiracy mode. Um, but until then, <laughs> um, one thing to, keep in mind is maybe before we start getting to this is it, I, I look at this whole pattern recognition thing as you can see patterns within patterns within patterns, kind of like a Russian nesting doll. So like when right. we talk about BlackRock, you know, there's definitely a pattern there. And then when we talk about big tech censorship, right, there's definitely a pattern there, but then you can put those two patterns together to form a bigger pattern. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about these globe spanning conspiracy theories, I think that's what ends up happening a lot of times. So, you know, as we're walking, as, as we're talking about this stuff and walking through this stuff, maybe keep that in mind. Cause I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Right. It's kind of a, a mega pattern. Meta pattern. I'm, I'm thinking of something coming from like a pterodactyl or like it's some right, kind of yeah. dinosaur mega pattern is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I think of it as patterns within patterns. Yeah. Kind of growing. Yeah. So, 
So, you know, I remember when I saw the promotion or there was literature coming out from the Great Reset uh, that said, you know, you will own nothing and be and be happy. And a lot of people glued in on that saying, okay, they don't want us to own any land. They don't want us to own any property. They want all of the, um, they want sort of what people were calling like a socialist concept of the state owns everything, maybe even a super state like the UN owns everything. And then you looked at, local laws and you're going, well, is that really, is that really the case, right? Are we seeing patterns? Are we seeing data points that could support a pattern that the governments are really embracing this idea that you own nothing outside of a place like, you know, a monarchy where, you know, the entire country and all the land is owned by a single family or um, maybe a communist state where the state still, you know, owns all the property. Uh, but then now we, we are seeing some information, right? I mean, some of the data points we're seeing almost seem to fall into that pattern, right? Of you will you will own nothing, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about BlackRock? Yeah, so th- this is really interesting. Um, so the, the initial story is that BlackRock is going out and buying up uh, a lot of single family homes or a lot of residential real estate. And that's one of the big things that's driving up real estate prices right now. And that's led a lot of people to think that uh, the intent here is to drive people or drive the U.S. into a renter nation. Uh, Mm -hmm. If they can't afford a home, they're going to have to rent it. They're going to have to rent it from a massive mega. I don't even know what you would call them. Um, BlackRock, I mean, they started off as a hedge fund, right? Now they're just basically a huge finance company. Yeah, yeah, the largest asset management company in the world. They have about nine trillion under assets, nine trillion with a T. Yeah, Uh, they are. uh, They are the largest well in the ocean. Yeah. And in researching that, I ran across a good article on American Thinker and they they expanded on that a bit and said that between BlackRock and another asset management company called the Vanguard Group, something like I forget the exact number, but like 80 percent of the shares of the largest corporations are owned by institutional investors with these two corporations or with these two groups, BlackRock and the Vanguard Group being the majority of that. So when you look at it from um, who owns the most stock controls the company standpoint, right? BlackRock and the Vanguard Group have an awful lot of power. Uh, over the economy. And um, if you look at that article in American Thinker, I'll, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. It's really interesting to see that, you know, Coke and Pepsi, you know, we think of them as fierce rivals, but they're actually owned by the same institutional investors, right? right so when yeah. you go high up off of the chain, right, they're, they're actually related to each other. And, and I thought that was really interesting um, because I think a big part of this idea of great reset is the idea that corporations are really going to do a lot of the heavy lifting, right? The great reset is not outwardly socialist, um, but it seems to envision a world where big corporations, um, they're the ones who are effectively um, setting our morals or working to help us set our morals and enforcing them. And I I forget exactly what it was called, right? But it was like, um, uh, what was the Great Reset's reference to, like, um, more responsible yeah, ownership right. and corporate oversight and things like that? Um, right. It, almost like the corporations are going to become the new religions in a way, right? They're going to be, yeah. be setting this. And so this article in the American Thinker pointed out one interesting thing is that we don't really see shareholder lawsuits, lawsuits that much anymore. So even when these companies um, do some it makes some social justice related decision that causes their stock price to go down. They're not getting sued by the stockholders. Well, why? Because the stockholders are these institutional investors who support these types of decisions, right? So we're moving away from the maximized profits at all costs to a maximized social well-being at all costs model. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you know, this is all speculation, um, but this is the the theory behind it. Um, Yeah. So uh, Paul, what do, what do you have to add? Well, I, I, it's um, so we've got a couple of data points there that I think are interesting. Uh, anecdotally, my uh, my parents were selling their home, and they heard from a friend who is a real estate agent that in Los Angeles, uh, some of the online listing tools like uh, I believe Trulia um, was was one of them that you know typically people knew home buyers or sellers are going on there and they're listing their homes. Well, they had actually started to buy homes. 
in, in, in the Los Angeles area. So the massive corporation almost being treated like a REIT, a, a, res, um, a real estate investment trust, they're buying up a lot of property. And these are, these are you know, uh, retail homes, right? These aren't commercial properties and they're buying them up and they were paying above market and substantially above market. And they have a, uh, an information advantage because they have the information listed on their, um, on their, on their website. And they've got, now they have, you know, 10, 15 years worth of data. So they have a, a data mining advantage. They have an information advantage and they have deep pocket advantage. So you can imagine a family of four that's competing with, with uh, one of these companies is disadvantaged. I think similar to the BlackRock situation, right? Uh, where they can uh, withstand changes in the economy differently than, than a single family. And then uh, I read uh, another headline where there was a proposal in California to provide state assistance, which actually goes a little bit against the narrative um, or, or this idea that you will own nothing. But they were going to offer up uh, the state of California could offer up somewhere in the order of 40 to 50 percent of your loan amount to some families to help them pay for the homes because the prices in these markets had increased to such a high level that they were pricing out families. And again, I, I guess where I start to see them merge is that we're seeing large institutions that have deep pockets that are uh, connected to the financial engine, which would be uh, our Treasury Department and our, our Federal Reserve. They have access to all of the liquidity and the funding in the network. And they're now providing either they're, they're purchasing actual property or they're providing ways in which they'd be part of the transaction, as in the case of California. But again, you're, you're, what you're seeing as a pattern there is that the the individual isn't owning the property. The something some kind of organization is, and they're having a bigger play. In the case of California, it may only be 40, 50 percent, but that's a far cry from you know zero, right? So you know the question comes in: Are, are we seeing a pattern that there's a coordinated effort? for you know organizations to comply with this idea that you will uh, you will own nothing and you'll be happy right and you know um i think it's easy to see these and say yes it's coordinated clearly they're taking all of our homes uh, i think there's there's other explanations that you could explore right so for example in the case of blackrock and vanguard there's another kind of very difficult disaster that's looming for a lot of pensions that they have to have certain returns to be able to pay their pension beneficiaries, right? And so they, if they're a one to two, you know, maybe they're a fifty billion dollar pension fund uh, the, uh, at a state level, or maybe it's a corporation. They give their money over to BlackRock and say, "Hey, we need you to go find those returns." Well, BlackRock is now uh, it's on the hook to go find those returns, and they're not going to limit themselves if they think that the real estate market is where it's at. So you know. That doesn't have to do with this idea that, well, all the peons can, can own nothing. It very much has to do with the financial incentives, right? So um, that could be, I think, a very plausible explanation. And, and just to clarify, I hate the idea of these corporations owning the real estate. I, it goes against my core belief. I know there's, there's the argument, well, you know, in a capitalist market, uh, you you can have this, but then then I would I would push back. Well, in a capitalist market, we would have a lot more rights to be able to go against the corporations that have uh, a beneficiary relationship with the financial engine. Right. Well, and remember, in a in a fully free market, you wouldn't have government working with these organizations to pass beneficial legislation. And then um, one article I read mentioned that BlackRock had, had received bailout money and that they're also taking advantage of favorable conditions with the Fed to right. get at more public money that they're now using to do all of this. So I think in a free market, you wouldn't have that. So a company like BlackRock or an organization like BlackRock probably wouldn't exist, at least not to the scale that it does. Yeah, I hundred percent agree there. So it, I think it's an erroneous argument. It, it's kind of, um, it's just not a very good uh, debate point if, if you bring that up. And it, to me, it's soft thinking, right? It, ultimately, whether you believe in more capitalism or some more regulated form of capitalism, we want um, probably similar things, um, unless you truly are someone that believes the state needs to own everything. Um, but I, what would you say, let me ask this, Scott, you know, we, we talk about pattern recognition, how to keep it from false and true. 
how do you think people can monitor this to think about as they as they get you know uh, how they can verify this you know whether the great reset is having a bigger or lesser impact on their lives going forward yeah first off i would just sit down you know and take the shackles off your brain for a second and try to come up with other reasons why BlackRock could be doing this, could be buying up all these single family homes. So you brought one up, right? They got to put themselves in a solid financial position for um, pending issues with pensions. Um, you know, and it could be, they just have cash laying around that they need to do something with and buying real estate is what they identified as their best investment strategy for that cash. Right. Um, so it, it could be absolutely benign. Right. Yeah. So y- y- keep that in mind. And when you're reading BlackRock articles, try not to just read the articles talking about how bad it is that they're buying up real estate. You know, try to read other articles and get, just get more information. Um, and and I know it's hard. I mean, I, I was just looking here at the list of former BlackRock officials who work in the Biden and Harris administration. And, you know, there's definite, you know, there's there's definite links there between the right. company and the administration. And um, and we know that BlackRock has successfully um, lobbied Congress um, to get favorable lit- uh, regulations put in place. Um, so it's easy to see that there's some big conspiracy there. But yeah. take a step back and just ask yourself, okay, what, what are other plausible explanations? Okay, and yeah. then you enter in your into your probabilistic thinking. Okay, how how probable is it that there that BlackRock is entering into a scheme with the federal government to buy up all the real estate, so we have no choice but to rent? Now, how mm-hmm. likely is it that they're just looking for good investment opportunities? Right. So, right. Um, yeah. So just just keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can also be looking for other data points that suggest maybe a softening in. Um, property rights for individuals and a strengthening of property rights for uh, governments or for institutions or for organizations. I think that's another way you can look in and say, okay, are we, see, are we starting to see a pattern that is, is playing out more? Um, if, if those things don't change, it doesn't mean that you can't have a bad outcome. Uh, as we said, we, we don't, we're not, no fans of BlackRock owning a, a bunch of uh, real estate and, and renting the poorer families or even moderate or even wealthy families. Uh, but it also doesn't mean that the um, the information that <clears throat> excuse me the information that you're seeing is 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 a real pattern. But uh, but but there's other ones we can explore, right? Uh, there's other ones that we can explore. So uh, what were some of the other kind of data points that you saw that you found interesting since our last discussion on the Great Reset? Um, the big one here is just everything that's surrounding big tech. And the Google, um, Google slash YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, I guess what is just basically censorship of certain ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so one interesting thing that I found, um, well, I guess maybe to back up, let's give a little bit of background here. So uh, especially with, with COVID going on, right, we saw a lot of instances where um, certain information was just... It, it seemed like certain groups just went to extraordinary efforts to keep certain information quiet from hitting the mainstream, right? right? We saw it with, you know, initially the lab leak hypothesis, which we talked about on another um, episode of the podcast, um, hydroxychloroquine, right? There's a lot of questions around some of those studies and, you know, the big study that supposedly proved once and for all that hydroxychloroquine didn't work, right? Got retracted in less than a week after it got published um, because of method, um issues with the methodology. And, and now, um, if you listen to the dark horse podcast and Brett Weinstein, um, and he was also on Joe Rogan talking about this, um, it, all of the censorship around the drug ivermectin, mm-hmm. um, and I, YouTube basically has a policy that if you say ivermectin, your video is getting taken down. Um, and, and we have to wonder why. So for the folks who don't know, ivermectin is an anti-parasitic. Um, it's had great success in treating things like river blindness. Um, and I think elephantitis was one of the other ones I heard. And it's been around since the 70s. And recently, like within the last 10 years or so, the inventors of ivermectin won a Nobel Prize because it was such a, uh, it, it's been so, so helpful to the world for helping so, to combat parasitic, parasites. Yeah. yeah. Several billion 
doses have been administered. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we have, we have an amazing amount of information on its safety record. Right. And there are doctors who are having great success treating COVID with ivermectin, yet we don't hear about it. So the question becomes why, right? Are we, you know, why is big tech doing so much to keep these stories suppressed? And we can look at it a couple different ways, right? The emergency use use authorization for the vaccines requires that there's, I forget the exact language, but no viable alternative treatment available. So if the story about ivermectin was common, common knowledge and people were treating COVID with it, those vaccines would have never gotten released, right? So it could have been just, just sheer greed mm-hmm. uh, involved here. Um, you know, it, it could be that the officials really did have questions about ivermectin safety, um, but of course they haven't haven't legitimately raised those questions yet that I've seen. Um, you know, so maybe they're just you know trying to do what's best for us, and they're just making a mistake. Or, you know, the more nefarious uh, Great Reset type conspiracy theory is they want us to take these vaccines for some reason. So they're keeping yeah. alternative treatments quiet. Um, but it's, it, it's a really interesting story. So that's a specific one about ivermectin. Um, but I did find that um, Twitter is actually getting sued right now. And in some of their motions and I guess disclosure documents, they've admitting to having some sort of a program in place where government officials can contact Twitter to have tweets removed. And that's, and I mean, we're talking about an actual well thought out plan. And it sounds like there's maybe a portal that Twitter has created on the internet for government Mm -hmm. officials to get in and actually flag tweets that they find objectionable. Right. Right. Um, we, we've also heard, um, Stories about how the Atlantic Council, which is a NATO think tank, pro-war NATO think tank, has been working with Facebook to, you know, censor extremist content and whatnot. Um, so, do we, do we put "extremist" in, in quotes? Air in quotes. quotes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but what was the joke? If everybody else is being warned by Facebook that they're being extremist, extremist content, except you, then you're the extremist. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So, um, so um, there definitely seems to be a lot of coordination between government and business, right? So like we talked about with BlackRock, right? When the government and business are going to have to coordinate to make the reset, the great reset happen. So, right, is censorship part of that? Are they yeah. restricting the information that's made available to us to get us all thinking a certain way? Um, and I know we've we've already made one joke about Brave New World and SOMA, but, you know, the the... Other big part of Brave New World was all the sleep conditioning that was going on. Yep. So is, is it the same thing here? Are they just giving <laughs> us the same information over and over again? Not necessarily while we sleep, but while we're awake staring at our screen, our computer yeah. screen, right? We're getting the same information over and over again until we start to believe it. Uh, that's a good question. It, it, it is a good question. And to add to this, uh, this month, or I guess it's July now, last month, <clears throat> The World Economic Forum put together a white paper uh, that they called, I'm getting the title here, Advancing Digital Safety, a Framework to Align Global Action. So it, it's, again, it's one of those areas where the language is very high level. You hear safety, you hear action plan. And when you read the abstract, they're talking about the sharing of information and they cite studies uh, where bad ideas or false ideas spread exponentially quicker than truth. And so, what you're what you're seeing, if you if you choose to, is that we've got we've got organizations where um, you have you know billions of hours spent you know <laughs> collectively across across humanity on these social media platforms. You have them. Um, potentially aligning with governments to give us good information. I put that in quotes, um, truthful information. And then, then you have this, what appears to be a truthful, honest discussion about uh, a potential drug during COVID. So this, this, the context here is that these, these issues are coming up during a pandemic in which asking questions about the, you know, the alternative treatments, asking questions about the numbers, uh, questioning uh, the use of masks, asking about lockdowns, 
talking about, you know, or asking the question, are there, are, are there alternative drugs? And, and to be a very, put a very refined point, one of the doctors um, that gave testimony in front of Congress about the potential use of drugs, including ivermectin, that testimony was taken down, I believe, by YouTube. So within their policy, they wouldn't even allow a discussion in front of Congress um, where you have senators asking this this man, uh, this doctor, about his experience um, because in their their own words, they don't want to be spreading false information. Yeah, yeah and, and then yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but just just remember to testify before Congress, you have to be invited, right? Congress doesn't hold office hours where anybody can show up and just start talking. Darn right. it. I was going to show up. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that plays more to it, too, is like, I mean, Congress thought enough of this to invite somebody to give testimony. Mm-hmm. So why the hell is YouTube taking it down? Right. And yeah. So sorry to interrupt you there. But. No, no, not at all. No, I think that's a great point that we need to understand, um, have some knowledge of how these processes work and realize, as you just said, that when a, when a person is brought in to provide testimony, uh, it's not just anybody that's allowed in there, right? And and so, what what does it say to us when the uh, members of Congress that we've elected, right, uh, that they're having a conversation that it, you would you would imagine has to be somewhat legitimate, right? <laughs> if, if if they're having it, the, the the chairperson allowed it to take place, and we're not allowed to hear it because it's not truthful information, right? It, it, it's it's hard not to imagine how someone would interpret that information uh, in some conspiratorial type of way, right? I mean, if if I'm hearing that, it's it's again, it's not. Um, I, I guess it's easier to see it when it's about decency. Uh, when you divide it and saying, well, there's you know the language that they used in this is I've got a five year old kid, I don't want them to hear the language, and I, I want to set up Facebook or YouTube not to share those videos with certain type of language. Or perhaps you're offended by nudity and sexual, um, you know, imagery, and so you don't want to include that. That to me seems um, like maybe a standard that we've seen over over the past, right? That's that's considered um, fairly consistent. Uh, and then now we're hearing just ideas, just ideas. Um, I, I mean, are we seeing again? Are we seeing a pattern um, where you know the the people at the the Great Reset, part of the Great Reset is is trying to uh, do things like equality, sustainability, and safety. Are we seeing a pattern where they're having an outsized impact on our lives? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Or is this just an un, you know, it's it's is it more of an evolution of these organizations? Just like BlackRock saying, "Hey, we've got money, we got to deploy it." If I'm a social media company. I'm saying, what's the easiest way for me to get rid of my competition and keep my business model running? Well, to tell Congress, what is it that you need me to do? It, because the cost that I have to pay is going to be nothing. I have the resources. My competitors won't be able to pay it. So I can I can stick around. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like we said, you know, seek out disconfirming information. Um, it, it, this is compelling, too. Um I mean, not, not compelling as in, I think it's true, but compelling as it's just a really interesting idea, you know? So we know that, right. One of the, one of the first things that an authoritarian tries to do is control the flow of information. Okay. Right. And I, I, I don't know if the great reset explicitly said this, but I would imagine that's one of the pillars or, or you know, one of the main strategies behind implementing the great reset, right? It's, it sounds like they're, they're trying to create a society where everybody's happy and doesn't have to worry about things. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to draw another connection. I keep drawing the connections to brave new world, but I think that was, I think it's on point. Not that I'm saying mm-hmm. we're going to turn into brave new world, but I think that idea where, you know, you're supposed to just be happy and you're supposed to behave like an infant in your free time um, and not question things. Um, This idea of shutting down all of the conversation, except the conversation that the people in charge want you to know is part of that, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, the people doing the censoring, they always take the moral high ground and they become self-righteous and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this to protect you. 
you know, right. you, you can't handle access to this, to this terrible information. You can't think for yourself. So we, we're going to do it for you. So you can just go on living your nice, happy life. You can, you know, go back to watching Netflix or, you know, Pornhub or, you know, whatever it is that you're into. <laughs> that's um, right. And, and I, I think that's really interesting. And I ran across some stuff from Karl Popper. Um, this was an article that was on the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER. And it was pretty interesting. And he talked about um, this idea of authority and that in life, there is no true infallible authority. Hmm. Okay. So that means that any authority that we listen to, right, there's a possibility that they're getting something wrong or they're lying to us, right? That's possible too. So because of that, um, interestingly, he pointed, the, the author pointed out that when Fauci said that, you know, to criticize Fauci is to criticize science, right? <laughs> he was basically setting himself up to be that infallible authority. Well, right. you know, so he, he basically invalidated himself by trying to turn himself into that thing. Um, right. But the idea is, is because authority is fallible, we need the free flow of information. We need people to, we need to have people be able to freely speak and talk and experiment mm-hmm. about different ideas in order to come to the best conclusion. So I think of when government throws that idea out and says, no, we are the infallible authority. You will listen to us, right? That that's a step in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And I think when we look at that in terms of the great reset, right, I think that's pretty interesting. Like, is this, you know, is this another piece of the puzzle of the great reset? Or like you said, (laughs) is it social media companies trying to protect their market is it right. people, you know, people like you and me The you know, we refer to them as Karens and, and whatnot, right? Do they, do they really think that they're doing good by trying to yeah. go out there and silence people? And, you know, is their heart in the right place or is this a nefarious act that's sort of part of some bigger scheme to enslave human, the human race? It's a... <laughs> It's definitely enslaving the human race. Yeah. I, I am fully, they want to turn us all into lizards, yeah. happy, but happy lizards. So we should be, we should be right. Yeah. That. I, yeah. It, the authority question, expert question is, is interesting. I think it plays into certain people's desire to relinquish responsibility for their decision-making to someone else in, in periods of great uncertainty. And so the language you'll hear something is like, well, you're not an expert in this field. This person is an expert in this field. Therefore, you should defer to them. Now, in Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman talks about this a little bit. And if you haven't read that book, I strongly suggest it. It is a fascinating read, very dense, but it goes into detail about um, our, our biases and how we operate and how we're irrational in ways we don't quite understand. But uh, there's at least a few sections where he talks about the difference in expertise and how you actually achieve it. And, you know, I think the example that he, he talked about was the fact that, you know, you had these these expert stock pickers, right, that were working at trading companies that when you looked at the data, there was no expertise at all, right? The, the, their results um, weren't any better than, than perhaps a non-expert throwing a dart at the board, Right. Uh, and that had to do with the complexity of the system in which they were operating. But I mean, real world questions. Well, how do we compensate these people? This this guy did really good for two years. Now he's not doing as well. You know, is he not as expert as we thought? Well, maybe he was never an expert. He just got lucky for two years straight, right? Um, and I think he contrasts that with certain situations where an intuition expertise can be developed. Um, and, he, and he talked about with firemen uh, going into a building and f- having a sense, almost what, what we sometimes call a sixth sense for a building that was about to collapse, where their, their body and their, their senses are actually picking up on cues and data that give them actually an advantage over the environment that if they listen to that, they, they, you know, they can actually take something from that information and that it's, it's learned behavior. And of course, there is expertise, Right. Um, if I talk to a doctor about my body and I go in there and I say, well, I've got an issue with my ear, they've studied the ear canal. They've studied, uh, they're aware of different types of illnesses that can, that can occur. So, so there, there's, there's kind of that middle ground. There's, there's this expertise area, right? And especially the, the, the more area that they're able to cover their expertise can grow because they've seen the terrain before, right? And they can apply what they've learned, but y- you, you, you have to look at, and I, I struggle with the expert kind of authority 
expert a little bit because there's other areas that we, we never seem to acknowledge where they get it wrong, right? Uh, and, and just this morning, I saw a post from Paul Graham. I know I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. He was tweeting about a book which talked about uh, all, all the, the members of the, the Bush administration just running full steam ahead into uh, the Iraq war. And in there, they, the, the expert from the book was talking about how they, you know, they concocted a narrative, a false narrative about weapons of mass destruction based on some, some spurious, if that's the right word, um, data points to, to create this idea. And so you had sort of, you know, a bunch of people that were experts in making decisions, people that had been in their field for 20, 30 years, entire careers that, you know, based on their expertise, they were entirely wrong about the situation. They read it wrong and they made a terrible, terrible choice. Um, we, we seem to ignore those. We seem to ignore those when we say, well, no, this is science. And I, and I look at that and I go, is it, is it, you know, are we saying that there's no politics in science that somehow our institutions and our processes are, are elevated above that? Um, that our data systems are not politicized, that the funding processes are not politicized. And I think if you examine them, it's difficult to know how politicized they are. And politicized is just more of a proxy for saying they're influenced by humans the scientific process doesn't care if you're a human or a chimp following the process, right? So, uh, yeah, I think I think the expertise question is an interesting one. I think it's also uh, an area where authoritarian, and they can be good authoritarian and bad authoritarian. I would think overall history has shown us that authoritarian is bad. Uh, we don't have many good examples of good authoritarian people um, that they tend to want to Sensor information. They they like the idea of having experts that they can refer to that tell them exactly what they believe they're already already going to say. It's almost prescripted, and so it's it's almost a tactic. Which brings you back to the question: Are we seeing something that is more conspiratorial? Right? Are we seeing a pattern where the Great Reset is talking about safety? It's improving, and we're going to do that through more authoritarian ways of cutting out information that the non-experts can't shouldn't be able to access because they don't have the right tools and services to analyze it. That's, that's the question, Scott. I don't know. Do you, do you think we're getting closer? Do you think we're, we're moving down the land? Are we going to put our tinfoil hats on? I'm not there yet. Um, but you know, I'm not going to discount it completely. Sure. You know, the reality is I think there's a lot of mixed motivations here and I think there's a lot of people taking advantage of the situations. Um, to benefit themselves and that it just happens to also um, go in line with the great reset. Well, that's just a, 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 a beneficial coincidence for uh, Klaus Schwab, I guess. <laughs> but I, I think, I think this idea of looking at things in patterns and seeing, okay, now and, and asking yourself is, is what I'm seeing really a pattern, right? Is, is the black rock thing, is that pattern, is it really related to the censorship thing, right? Are they really mm-hmm. trying to push us towards this idea where everyone's happy, there's no adversity in life, you like you you just rent your, you know, you rent your houses and you just sit there and you you only get exposed to the information that we want to expose you to and, and you don't have anything to worry about, have a happy-go-lucky life, or are these just two completely unrelated patterns? Right. Yeah, I- I think that's the right question. I know I don't have the answer. Uh, I, I think what you talked about before, this idea of you, you know, you, you hear an idea, let's call it the great reset. It doesn't sound very good to you. Are you seeing data points that suggest that it's moving in um, a certain direction where perhaps it's moving from an idea into execution mode? Um, and then realize that it, there are other explanations. I mean, in some ways, we talk about the Great Reset being the originator, but perhaps it's more a reflection of sort of these elitist classes and the way in which they view the world and improving the world. Um, you know, I was, I was having a conversation this last weekend uh, with a, I'll call him a, a nature man, a hunter here in Montana. And uh, I mean, this guy's been, you know, he does some crazy number, 250 days of fishing a year. Um, you know, he's, he's hunted his, his entire life. The, the guy knows, you know, he's got uh, Montana dirt in his, in his gut kind of thing. And, um, we were talking about burning up, um, forests that have a lot of dead wood. And he said, you know, in the past we didn't have a lot of, uh, human settlements in these areas that were hev- heavily wooded and, and the wood would die off. A fire would come through, it burn it up. We didn't think much of it because, you know, nature needs to burn off the dead wood and, and bring it back. 
what's happened, unfortunately, is as homes have moved into these areas, we now have a, an incentive to preserve those homes, right? You have a financial incentive uh, in terms of insurance and wanting to keep these people's homes, um, you know, in, in good capacity, right? And, and safe. Then you obviously you want to save the human because a human life is, is considered sacred. So now we will do what, what he calls controlled burns. So you're not giving nature uh, the same opportunity to do what it knows, how, how it's performed for, you know, millennia. And um, that, that to me, I think about that here where, you know, humans have this propensity to want to change the environment, to act, right? And we, we, we talk about that a lot, just this idea that your, you know, your incentives matter. In this case, it's preserving a home, preserving a family. The, the desire to act says, well, we got to stop the fire, right? We can't let it burn out because heaven forbid, you know, these people die in their home, their home's lost. And we, you know, the other question could be, well, what damage are we doing to the environment by not allowing it to, to burn? Right. Uh, and I think about, I think there's, there's a, a similarity here where people have a view on, you know, we're going to be able to control these environments. We understand enough of the variables. We can create a, a better environment and here's the levers that we're going to pull. And um, ultimately, I think it's ignorant. I think it's arrogant. Uh, I think it's also very much part of the human condition for for men and women of power to believe that they can do it. So it's not something we're gonna we're ever going to get away from. Which is perhaps another reason we'll never get away from conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, you know, if the government didn't want people to believe in conspiracy theories, then the government should stop engaging in conspiracies. <laughs> there we go. Um, um, something, yeah, just something quick that we talked about a little bit about before we started recording that I thought was interesting is this idea of, you know, a, conspir- a conspiracy theory can be proven true if the government eventually admits to it, right? So we know Operation Paperclip, Operation um, um, Mockingbird, uh, those things, right? The government's admitted to them, but we can never prove a conspiracy isn't true or probably rarely could prove it's not true because if the government says, no, this isn't true, the conspiracy theorists are going to say, of course, that's why we expected you to say that. That's, that's why it's that's a conspiracy. Right. So right. Um, it, it, it's an interesting dynamic there, right? You're never going to prove them false. You're only possibly going to prove them true. So, yep. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, um, it doesn't exist for other parts of our lives. It's always going to sit in that module where we're, we're looking for the, the patterns that confirm that the, the governments are coming after us. Right, so. right. Well, w- what do you think? Do you think in six months we'll come back to this topic and thought, man, my gosh, we just got this entirely wrong? You know, we, we thought it was, you know, 30% chance of being a conspiracy. It turned out it was so evident that all the all the other people were seeing the patterns. What, 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 what percentage do you think? <laughs> oh, I, I, I think there might be you know, there's, there's certainly going to be more patterns that we're going to pick up on and look at. Um, but again, I don't know, I don't know that we're going to get past the question of are these patterns actually related and part of this grand conspiracy or are they just, uh, random events that happen to be, you know, happening that are just happening close to each other at some point in time. Uh, that's, I don't know. I I think I feel the same. To me, there is a, um, a sea change in terms of values and how we look at our values and whether you agree or disagree with some of the discussions about um, climate change um, and how much of it is, is caused by man versus natural shifts in our, um, in our environment. What's not, what, what to me seems evident is that we're not going to get away from saying, well, we don't want to change fossil fuels uh, and, and, and using uh, what I'll say, quote unquote, our uh, renewable fuels, we're, we're, we're just not moving away. So you, you, you have to layer that on too, right? That, that society's values that they, they agree to in aggregate, um, they change and evolve over time as well. And uh, whether that's right or wrong, um, if you just study it, you can, you can see where um, some of these patterns are starting to push in that direction. So, um, you know, the concept of sustainability is, is, somewhat comical when you read about how a lot of the renewable energies actually come to uh to fruition uh, the manufacturing process the sustainability of windmills and how they while they can't recycle them when they take them down the fact that we have to mine for rare earth minerals to put into the 
you know, all of these renewable resources. Um, and then, you know, plus the energy that we actually have to use to create them. We're not having a very level-headed conversation in that area, but that doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter in the, in the scope of what a lot of people believe is, is an absolute necessity to save the human species. And therefore, they're willing to go to great lengths to achieve it, which could bring us back to, well, is it a conspiracy or is it a change in values? I don't know. Um, it seems to me to be the, uh, the last one where it's more value systems are changing and, um, and, and we're just, we're in the midst of watching that evolution occur, but yeah, exactly. I think, um, as long as we go with the, uh, simplest explanation or the best actor, the true, the truth is the simplest explanation or whatever it is. Um, I think the simplest explanation is that we just have a bunch of greedy, self-interested folks who are running the show. And they're mm-hmm. doing what happens to be best for them at the time. Yep. Um, not that this is some grand um, planned out scheme. Right. I think, I think there we're in agreement. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, well guys, we appreciate you taking us all the way to the end of the show. Uh, we love, we love having these conversations. We talk a lot offline. It's fun to do a recording. We're going to come back in six months and see whether or not our, uh, our beliefs held up or if we found out that, um, we were censored, taken down because it turned out that we were the, the uh, we were the bad people having wrong thought. <laughs> right. Neither of us were warned by Facebook that we may be getting exposed to extreme content. So um, we're probably the ones that are doing the exposing, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're, we're the bad guys. Yeah. So, well, listen, well, thanks for, for tuning in wherever you are, wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your comments. Uh, find us on mentallyunscripted.com where you can sign up. Um, and, uh, receive, uh, updates from us and, um, leave, leave your comments wherever they are, be it on Apple, Stitcher, um, Spotify, wherever you're listening to, um, to what we're sharing. We'd love to hear your comments and hear your thoughts and uh, until next time, take care. Bye.